Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by a lovely gentleman called Carlos Popelka. I just met him actually today. I heard a rumor that a gentleman had rode his bicycle into town and had been riding for three years, and I thought it would be a really good opportunity to take to hear his story because, as we always, need another episode. And he was ready to do it and willing to do it, and I thank you for joining me. So, Carlos, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chaping, for having me. Yeah, man, it's really nice of you to do it at such late, short notice. I know you're you're leaving tomorrow. You're riding out of here on your bicycle. Um, but maybe before we get into your bicycle riding, can you please maybe just give the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, maybe a little bit of your upbringing, so we can just get to know you a little bit better? Yeah. Um, by birth, I was uh, I come from from Germany, which you probably will will hear in my accent, although I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then later, I went uh, to Chile, and I grew up in Chile. Uh, the reason being that my father was or is German, uh, is uh, Chilean, sorry. And uh, so after many years in Germany as a guest worker, he decided to go back. And so I'm in that way a little bit of a split personality. I have a lot of German in me. Uh, and at the same time, I have a lot of Latino in me. And uh, that makes me kind of... Uh, Part of both worlds, but also of none of those, of those fully. Interesting. How did you get the Which, German accent then? If you spent most of your time growing up in Chile. Oh, I I left with ten, and so those early years are very very important, I guess, when okay. when 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 it comes to to how we speak. Perhaps not in what we speak and mm-hmm. and generally how we manage languages, but the way we pronounce stuff. I guess that's when our 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 mouth is, is shaped, I guess. So do you speak um, Spanish with I a German speak Spanish. accent? With a no, German accent? yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And where did you grow up then in Chile? I speak German with a German accent too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and in Chile I grew up in San Bernardo, which is a small town, perhaps 20 kilometers out, out of Santiago, on the country, in the countryside. And that probably was a very important point for me, uh, who... who who decided, I decided myself really to join my father to get to Chile because my mother stayed in Germany with my siblings uh, because I simply didn't like uh, life in the suburbs of another town. While Chile was promising uh, country life, uh, really after school, once I took off my uniform, I was free to go and do whatever I wanted. What kind of stuff would you go do? I liked, I, I always liked agriculture and all things related to farming. And so I spent a lot of time with the neighboring plantation owners, uh, who essentially then, uh, guided me into an agricultural career, if you so want. So uh, I went into an agricultural school and, uh, later in order to study, I had to leave Chile. Um, back then, this was the last years of Pinochet. Um, 
higher education was extremely expensive and probably still is. Uh, and then I was reminded that in Germany uh, that's not the case. Um, and I had because I had all my all my papers mm-hmm. for Germany. Mm-hmm. I so I was go I was able to get to Germany and make uh, go to university there. They studied agricultural engineering. Um, so what, yeah. what were you looking to grow? I guess what was your oh my my idea was essentially to go. So study in Germany and go back to Chile, and I expected to be uh, welcomed and offered a lot of good jobs with a German degree, and none of that uh, mat- mat- materialized. Really? So uh, I guess that's an important part uh, still today in the sort of decisions I have taken. Um, I grew up, uh, and I was praised by everyone how smart a kid I was and I knew everything I was going to do in my life and I surely lived that way until the day I came back with my degree to Chile and nothing was like I I had thought it would be. And that's for many reasons. The country Chile changed a lot in After those first Pinochet. years of democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are talking here about 94, 95 when I went back. And obviously, I changed a lot. We often forget that, that life, life, uh, not only our surroundings change, we change. And surely university life changes you. So as an example, um, life, uh, uh, academic life in Germany is, 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 is all about critical thinking. It's all about questioning pretty much anything. And the scientific career, which which most of academia um, points towards, is about that. It's about questioning, about finding facts to support or um, or not your, your, your ideas and your hypotheses. While Chile uh, and Chilean society didn't quite work that way yet. I'm not sure about now. But. Mm. So I went back and just everything was, was so different. And so, so different in a negative way, at least from my perspective. So, um, from one day to another, I mean, there are many other reasons here. This is just one aspect, really. But I felt, literally, I felt like the, the, the floor was taken from my feet mm. and I was in the air for about a year. A year. A year. It was absolutely terrible. And, and the only way it seemed was to, was to get out of there. Before, and that's terrible. Sorry, yeah, just before we go into you, like, kind of just making that decision to get out, I think for the audience, um, a little history of Chile would be nice to help them understand Pinochet and his influence on to the Chilean people and the culture. If you can yeah. just give us a brief... Um, I obviously can only say about those years in which I lived and those years which uh, I then saw the results of. You, as most countries which are, which are closed or, or live in a, uh, in a, in a slightly isolated way. Like, for instance, there were no tourists whatsoever during Pinochet. And that's not so much for, for security reasons. Chile was a very secure state. Well, like most police states are, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, um, it was simply that there's, that the international, uh, like the international community didn't want to support anything to do with the regime that 
that uh, had some blood on the fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the help of other large players in the world, we know all that. But the main point is that the way I grew up in Chile was in a in a society that that appreciated family, that appreciated gatherings at the weekend, that appreciated uh, respect and and hospitality, or or, or at least I appreciated uh, um, enjoying those. Um, so I had a very good. Uh, although I was a problematic child in terms of discipline, uh, as I have been told by many teachers with whom I have, I always had a very good relationship. Because I guess many teachers like that. They like to be challenged and they like a kid that, yes, challenges them, but also is, is um, approachable and, and thinks at, at, the, at the end of the day. So uh, now we move forward. When I came back from Germany, uh, this is four years, five years later, and I found a society that was pretty much in a rush. So suddenly the doors had had opened, stuff had poured in, and people wanted to buy that stuff, whether they needed it or not. And so in order to get stuff, as we all know, all over the world, we need to work hard to get the money to find to pay for stuff that we probably don't need. That's the famous uh, rat race. And in Chile, that rat race just went uh, totally to an extreme and ad absurdum. So back to my teachers. my Many of my teachers who now were friends, uh, they would work three shifts. They would work the morning shift for the larger kids, the afternoon shift for the smaller kids, and then an evening shift uh, for people perhaps preparing for university. And perhaps we all have gone through that in our lives for a while. But imagine a society entirely devoted to acquiring stuff, working crazy, and essentially being burned out. So it, that, it comes down to that. I've, I thought in so many ways that Chile was a totally burned out society. So forget about hospitality, forget about time spent with others, forget about just just having time for each other and um, so yeah it, it was quite, quite tough another thing that I I really struggled with was uh, an extreme classicism in Chinese society which is something apparently is still there and probably will always be the first thing you are asked as a traveler when you go to Chile I have been told this by people I meet along the road is so where did you study and if you have not studied, or if you don't even give a damn about um, sort of academically learning anything, um, conversation is over, and there you are, sitting alone. These are by Chileans. Or this by is by, by, Chile, by Chileans. Okay. Uh, and so, um, and I, I felt that many times, like I don't really care about clothes I wear and so on. So, and in Germany, I would be accepted. As long as you are a normal person and don't behave rudely, people will treat you as a normal person. Uh, so if I go with rags from, uh, from uh, garden work uh, to the bank, for instance, or to any other office building, I will be treated like a, like a person, like everyone else. Now, if I behave uh, 
badly, I will be treated accordingly. So in Chile, not in Chile, I would go in uh, into a into a, any sort of building, into a supermarket, and the first thing I have to deal with are these these looks and these 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 derogative uh, comments. And uh, so yeah, uh, I I struggled with with all that, uh, and I'm very happy that in the end, after about a year, I after some traveling actually, <laughs> well that was probably the start of the travel back back. I decided to go back to Germany. Not that I particularly like Germany, um, but it's simply because I felt I needed some some ground under my feet, and I knew how the rabbit runs in on how the tango goes, as they say, in Germany, and I just needed that sort of safety net. So Sa- go- safety net for me, like like emotionally also. Right, that makes sense. So did you go back then to Germany and start I, like a career and a life? I for went back to Germany and I I I went back to my university town, which is close by to Stuttgart. I knew how to get. I always uh, worked during my studies to finance it, so I knew where to get jobs and how to how to overcome the financial part. Because I, as you can imagine, after one year in Chile in limbo my finances were pretty much exhausted. So I went back and it was it was fine. Within within a very short time I had I had several little little jobs and I started uh, uh major um projects in the university where I had studied as a um yeah as a as a how would you call it a scientific assistant. So did which you want then, to pursue a career in academia? Which then le- led to a, to a PhD uh, in uh, genetics, which is a part of, of my field. I, I specialized in plant breeding, and a particular part of that is, is genetics, in my case, genetic engineering of crops, which is what I then did. I made my PhD, and I worked for many years in that field. That is fascinating. <laughs> which, uh, which then, just to close that, uh, which led me then from Germany uh, to Australia. Uh, I, I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get into the English-speaking world uh, for language reasons. My English was even more German than now. And I really wanted to, to uh, take that to a new level. Um, Did you have a job waiting for you in Australia? Yeah, well, first, first, I I gave a miss to very, uh, I can't even believe that I'm saying this here, uh, uh, some very very uh, attractive offers in Germany, uh, on a very high level, but I didn't feel fit for it, uh, especially, uh, I must say, especially due to my poor in, in English, I felt I was I would never be corrected again. Once you get to a certain level, people. Fear correcting you, and I feel that's important when you want to grow, when you want to learn uh, more, better yourself. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah, and so, no, and I had uh, an appointment in, sorry, and and a project with which I wasn't interested much in in Australia, but we clar- clarified that with my with my who would be my boss later, um, the agreement was that I would uh, 
take the project that he was offering me um, and that would finance other projects which, which would be scientifically more interesting. What was it, can I ask? Oh, it's, uh, it was in the, very broadly in, in the area of food security and, um, and food av- availability, really, in sub-Saharan Africa, where a very specific crop, the cowpeas, you may know the rock band, but not the crop. Okay. The cowpeas is an extremely important uh, crop uh, in the an entire sub-Saharan area, Sudan, Basin, Nigeria, Niger, and probably the main uh, protein source for about 100 million people uh, for a, a whole range of reasons. And the main problem is that two particular pests were... Um, were causing much struggle in this region uh, and food shortages on a regular basis. And there was no um, no real uh, solution in the classical breeding approach. Uh, I don't want to go into much detail into this, but there was much hope that th- using new technologies, in this case genetic engineering, would open... Uh, possibilities to introduce genes that would then uh, enable us um, to introduce resistances and on a, on a final step provide the farmers, which were very poor far- poor and small-scale farmers, provide them with, um, with germplasm that would allow them to harvest without uh, additional uh, use of pesticides, which uh, many people have come to consider normal, but uh, uh, using pesticides in those f- small-scale farmers brings a lot of trouble in itself. Uh, in what way? In what way? Poisoning uh, the farmer, producing products that are of lower quality because of uh, being uh, contaminated with the pesticides. And simply the financial part, those pesticides need to be bought. They need equipment to apply those pesticides. And we know that that's uh, not the most sustainable way of approach. Mm -hmm. While it has shown in this material, which we, in the end, uh, developed there with a wonderful and very capable team in Australia, who would have done the job without me at any rate, by the way, um, uh, this material is now in a very advanced uh, level of testing, uh, field testing, and has grown enormous potential. And everyone is really excited. Uh, I'm obviously, with all my travels, uh, not involved in this anymore, but hopefully remembered as being a little part of the team back then. So yeah. have you retired completely from Oh, work? absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, Can I ask how old you are? I'm 46. 46. Oh, yeah. Completely retired. Oh, yeah, but but long time ago. Like, uh, um, really, I left Australia and that project after four years, uh, and I made the decision to not work in science or any of that anymore. And essentially, I decided to start getting to know the world outside of the rich world's bubble uh, and to do that by bicycle. And so uh, I went in onto a four-year trip that took me back to Europe. Bicycling. You took a four-year trip to 
get yourself back to Europe from back. Australia? Exactly. No way. And then I stopped because it was, it, it's just not normal. And, uh, yeah. And I stopped for a while in Europe. Uh, and then maybe we can get to what I did in that interval later. And from there, then I started this current trip three years ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, I'd like to, so many questions going on through my yeah, head right now. Yeah. So the four year trip from Australia back to Europe, mm -hmm. you left from Australia, went up through Indonesia, I'm assuming. Well, uh, no, I, can you take us through that trip? Yes. And kind of yes. <laughs> very fast. I, uh, the, well, I was a cyclist beforehand. Okay. That may be something that people are interested in knowing. Uh, I was a passionate triathlete. Uh, which was one something that I really got seriously into in Australia. Um, I loved it. I just loved the outdoor outdoors, uh, just uh, wind in the air. And uh, for every uh, holiday that I would have, uh, I would just get from Canberra, which is the place I was living, which is the capital. I would just get into another direction for two, three weeks nonstop. And then in those days, just from the very end, take an airplane back to base and continue working. And I, uh, I did that with the, with the racing sort of setup, very light, no tent, just sleeping in, in, on a piece of tarp. Uh, and so by doing that, I could cover really long distances, go through the South Australian desert in summer, which is crazy. Is that called the Nar Narabu or Narabu or? Oh, no, no, that's for the, to the West. No, no. Oh, okay. Uh, that's, that's, uh, uh, going in from, um, from New South Wales into South Australia. Okay. It's, uh, it's rose color. It's unbelievable, especially at sunset. And of course, my, Colleagues then uh, would tell me, Carlos, are you nuts? It's summer and the desert is hot, as Australians would always warn you. And that obviously just excited me even more. In another memorable trip, I went south. I went uh, to Hobart in um, Tasmania. I ended up in Hobart. And all the yachts from the Sydney to Hobart race, race which starts on Boxing Day, were coming in. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to sail back? So I went to the, to the yachts and I found a yacht that the entire crew had decided not to sail back. And the skipper, the owner of the ship was there and he just needed people. And so I went and I asked him, Hey, can you, can I go with you? And have you ever been on a boat? Well, <laughs> not really. And he looked at me, and I still remember this, and he said, okay, jump. He wanted me to jump, like put out a jump with my arms, with hands up, and then get down into my knees and jump again and do that like 10 times. He said, okay, you are a jumper. I had no idea what a jumper is. Do you know what a jumper is? No. So when they change the sheets or the sails, as, or the sheets as they call it, they need someone to jump up, grab the rope, and with your weight, then hanging on the rope, you pull it down. Because these are giant sails, like big ships. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, not that big, but big, big enough. So that, they're giant sails. So you jump up, grab that rope, and then with your weight, you go into your knees and you pull that thing down. And then another dude behind you will, uh, you say, rail it in okay. onto, yeah, and then by that, you, you get the sheets up. 
And essentially, that was my job. And then some other things along the way. It was terrible. Well, I was in, and next day we started with the, the rest of the crew probably as experienced as me. It was, it was the total disaster. I mean, we made it, and the spirits were high at all times. But we had, I think it was five days, nonstop storms and waves over the boat. We had a man overboard in the middle of Bass Strait. It was was he attached to the boat? Though? He was. He was. He was. He was like a tea bag in the water. Okay. It was unbelievable. And I swore to myself, like it's one of those things you do, and you need to do to understand a lot of things about yourself. And and it's fascinating how our our body, our our system, just starts in such extreme situations, starts to shut down certain. Things that are not absolutely necessary in that moment. You don't need to go. You don't need to eat anymore. You don't need to to go to the toilet. And well, okay, you don't have anything to go to the toilet anyway. The heads, it's called on the mm-hmm. yacht. I'm absolutely no yacht expert or anything. Never will be. But uh, it's just it was it was very extreme. The most extreme thing I have ever done and probably will will ever do. Uh, and then eventually we got to back into Sydney, and of course, when you go around the Sydney harbor, this into this into into the harbor area, uh, and and you're sailing suddenly, you're sailing smoothly in, and then you still have the Sydney Hobart race flags on the ship, although none of the crew except the skipper had been on the actual race, and all those ferries and those other boats start to salute. And it's such an uplifting moment. I, I, again, although so close to the worst ever, then you have one of the most exciting moments of, a, of my lifetime anyway. That's quite normal, I think, for travelers. I mean, you spend so many um, days struggling, and then you have one moment that just makes it all worthwhile. Which makes you go on. It, gives you, it makes you forget those 80% of really crappy times. Uh, and makes you go on. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. So then, going back to your four years on the bicycle, when you did decide to ride back to Europe. Oh, oh yes. Um, so I, I had done a lot of those shorter trips, but then eventually I decided, okay, I I want I want to get out of the bubble. Uh, just make it short. I I was struggling with the fact that I was living uh, a very privileged life in Australia. During a time when uh, 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 Howard, uh, the back then prime minister, this was times of George Bush, Tony, Tony Blair, and and people like that, and in Australia they had the, that that refugees uh, policy that they would put them into those island um, concentration camps, a policy that yes, perhaps for them has 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 meant that no more migrants uh, dare going in by boat. But it made me feel ho- horrible. Why, why me? Why have, what, I, what have I done to deserve such a privileged life while no one else um, has even a chance to, 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 to dream of it? I mean, they dream of it, but they, it's, they, they shouldn't because it brings misery to them. And uh, there were other moments within my my scientific project in which I had to report about our 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 results in a conference in Kenya, and it felt strange to be talking in that conference about about that world 
which I knew nothing about. The world of struggle, the world, no one even had, had asked them if they wanted what we are doing. Really? I mean, no, well, I, no, not, not in terms of the crop we were producing. I'm not talking about that. No, but, uh, uh, when you, when, when you are surrounded by people who, who try to, to develop the world and bring them prosperity. Now, uh, we always assume that our life and our, what we are, what we are propagating is what everyone needs and wants and should have. And it felt wrong. It felt wrong without me having ever really suffered and felt hunger and felt, and I still haven't, but I still wanted to be closer to that and see things with my own eyes. Uh, yeah, it, it, it goes much further than just traveling and seeing places. It's really about experiencing uh, and getting closer to to the world outside there. I think an important thing is also, uh, and has become more over time, is really, when I was in Kenya, I was afraid of going out of that uh, hotel complex. When you were giving your, what, lectures or something? Do, do, during that period, yeah. I wanted to go out, and suddenly I realized, oh, gee, I, I, I don't dare going out. All those people, uh, uh, they seemed intimidating. And I didn't feel well by being afraid of not of going out. I, I wanted to face those demons. And it's something that has become more and more of a team now to really do things that I'm afraid of and exposing myself to these things which then turn out to be not, not bad at all and often, uh, bring wonderful experiences. Very well said. And, and, and essentially, all these little factors which I have mentioned and obviously the curiosity, curiosity to go out on a bicycle to see, okay, where can I get? What can I do with this thing? And so my, my first step was to get, uh, the, my, comp my, my employer was, would pay all my translocation, uh, or relocation fees back to wherever I was going. And I, I made an agreement. I said, okay, well, you send my stuff. Uh, I think I send it to Germany to a friend. Uh, but have me, uh, pay, pay a, a plane ticket for me to, to New Zealand with my bicycle. And then we are, we are set. And they were very happy. And I was very happy because I thought I start, I start doing this in, in this new arrangement with a different bicycle with much more stuff on the bike. I do it in New Zealand. A wonderful place. And if I don't like to cycle in New Zealand, I probably won't like it anywhere. That was the first thought. So, and obviously I loved it, uh, after I what, think. What year was that? That is, uh, 2006. Okay. I started my trip on the 1st of January at 12 o'clock. Like really when the year started, I, I touched down with an airplane in, uh, Christchurch. And that's where it started. It's almost like a birthday whenever wow. there are fireworks. <laughs> and it was wonderful. It was just, I had a ball. So you did cycled around New Zealand? I went through New Zealand for, uh, three and a half, almost four months. 
uh, and I was hoping to get uh, a yacht. Here I am again on. I was th again thinking of a yacht after I had sworn never ever to go back on a yacht, and I wanted to sail with a yacht back to Australia. It was cyclone time, and there's, there was no yacht whatsoever inside. So at the end, I had to fly uh, back to uh, Sydney. I went back to Canberra to say hello to my colleagues, and then I went into the outback up through the middle uh, and then around the Gulf of Carpentaria uh, towards Cairns. And from Cairns mm, I went to Papua New Guinea to Port Moresby. Uh, by boat or by plane? Uh, there's no boat anymore, oh, okay. unfortunately. Uh, so again, plane. Yeah, I, I don't like the idea of planes, but then, sometimes you have to. Oh, and unfortunately those sometimes are quite often, mm. more often than I would like. And uh, Port Moresby turns out it's not connected to the to New Guinea to the northern part of the island, and so uh, I sent the bicycle with an airplane, uh, which is uh, totally normal in Papua New Guinea. Is uh, is uh, things are transported by airplane, everything is transported by airplane, and I went by foot or through the Kokoda Trail uh, behind it. I took the bicycle back. In my under my power, so to speak, in Kokoda airstrip, I could tell you a lot of anecdotes on in this mm -hmm. part. But to make it short, from there I went then island hopping uh, through Indonesia. Eventually, I got uh, into Malaysia, then um, uh, mainland Malaysia, and then up the peninsula. To, to Burma, Thailand, Laos, the Southeast Asia thing, uh, eventually China, which uh, I loved, and in many ways I still do. I spent six months in China in total, until I really got paranoid with all the things that had happened. And, uh, and then I went to Japan, to Korea, and um, without any sort of coming out of Korea again, because to the north is North Korea, Russia, there's no way to get, uh, or at least for me, a visa to Russia. I could have gone to Vladivostok by, by, um, by ship. China was closed for the Olympics back then. They would ask for crazy sort of paperwork. So my only way out was to fly to uh, Nepal, and from there I started my big India Odyssey, which was almost a year in the subcontinent. Bangladesh, the problem states of Northeast um, India, mainland India, lots of terrible things, and uh, yeah. And then what, Pakistan? Uh, so I, I had some bad things happen in... Uh, just to, just to, we don't have to go into details. I was, I was uh, kidnapped in India, or let's say rather taken hostage for about a week, beaten up very badly, and that kind of took away a lot of the fun, a lot of my my curiosity about those challenges and challenging my fears. Mm -hmm. uh, the crazy it? thing is that. I wasn't really afraid of the situation, and that's dangerous. You should be afraid of certain situations. 
And uh, the bicycle was in very bad shape after that thing. Um, I traveled a little bit by... I left the bicycle with a friend. And I traveled a little bit by train in India. I was robbed twice during the, during that second sort of chapter. And then eventually I, I figured that um, Pakistan would be just... Uh, would it, I, multitudes and large crowds would would trigger something in my psyche in those days, and I just couldn't get over that. Mm. And that's not a good thing when you are in the middle of nowhere with a bicycle, and the crowd is inevitably going to happen. Mm. Uh, so eventually, I just said no. It's not going to. And then, that was a big blow. I really, really uh, was looking forward to to Iran, particularly. I have good friends in Iran from work, mm-hmm. whom I wanted to visit. And and but I flew to to Turkey, the next best thing, and I was able to repair my bicycle there. Uh, and I went because I felt so good. I went eastwards. Uh, towards, I really wanted to get to Iran. And about halfway into Anatolia, uh, probably entering Turkish Kurdistan, you would say, uh, I just started again, big crowds, kids throwing kids, uh, throwing stones, and just things would come up again. And I knew I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be very sane to go. Mm-hmm. So I made a turn and I went on the, on the Black Sea coast. I went back through Istanbul. And then essentially, essentially I tossed a coin. Uh, and the coin said Europe. And the other alternative would have been to go south towards Syria, which back then was still uh, at peace and go through the Middle East and then perhaps around the Mediterranean. Uh, and that is an important part of why I started this trip. We may come back to that later. Well, in, anyway, I went to Europe. I went through Bulgaria and Romania. And in Romania, I fell in love with this wonderful place. It's so diverse geographically interesting and, and just crazy with the Carpathian mountains making this huge bow between its culturally diverse, um, um, ethnically diverse, historically important. I mean, everyone knows about Dracula and all that is kind of mixed into this as well. And uh, I continued and eventually ended up in Germany. That's amazing, man. I mean, and where I, this is after four years, I stopped and okay. I decided, okay, all my colleagues from university are making big careers and are having, buying houses and are having families. And what is wrong with you, Carlos? <laughs> and, uh, I guess that's the reason why I wanted to be normal. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. I'm not functioning well in the places I want to go with the bicycle, so I may as well stop. And I did that, and uh, I just go on. Hang on. I do have a few questions. Mm -hmm. Um, First, just so the listeners can get a little perspective on, I mean, you sound like you were a professional for a long time. I'm assuming that you saved 
quite a bit of money to then just quit and do this four years of cycling. Um, were you using your savings to fund your cycling trip? Oh, I, I have always lived from what I have saved. Now, the thing is, uh, it doesn't mean that I have saved much. I just saved everything I earned. That was my next question. Like, what was your budget? The, re the reason is, the, po the point is that I never really have spent any money and have never taken joy in the stuff I can buy. Whatever I can buy is meaningless. And the things I do enjoy and that give me, give me quality in life is the things that are for free. Uh, the things that I can earn by sweating, by struggling, uh, uh, a day out in the cold and shivering in my tent and surviving that, that brings me incredible joy. But a pair of jeans that I can buy or, uh, or a beautiful bathroom, no, it's not, doesn't mean anything to me at all. Mm. And so imagine, uh, in Australia, four years working, being paid a normal wage and putting all that in the bank. Yes, that comes something together. But don't, do, do, don't ever think that it's about money and that mon not having enough money should stop you from traveling. Right. Um, what was your budget daily? Did you have a budget, like $5? I, I would not have a budget. But yeah, maybe it, it depends on the country. Obviously, my first countries where New Zealand, where Australia, back then I would sleep in hostels every now and then. Uh, still, it was already mostly camp, but then I would probably camp in a paid uh, campground or something. So my budget was was certainly much higher than it would be today. Right. I'm now never ever sleeping in a paid accommodation. Uh, with the rare exception, I won't dispute that, but, but very rarely. Okay. Really. Uh, um, so yeah, you want, you want a number? No, I no, it's I fine. You, you, yeah. you gave it's, me enough. That's fine. It's, uh, it's low. Five bucks. Yeah. Eight bucks I, um, pe perhaps I, uh, uh, towards there, I never had, when I travel, I never had, have any income. I never, Work along the way because in most countries it's, it's not allowed anyway. Um, uh, I often volunteer. I get to a farm, you know, in New Zealand that was ha often the case. I get to a farm and I get to talk to the farmer just out of interest because he has some crop that I have never seen or maybe something I, like I stopped with the beekeeper for a while. I'm very interested in beekeeping. And so I work there for, for, to, be able to put my tent and for food and that's all i would never accept a, a, a payment really yeah. uh, no um uh, i don't have income from 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 websites or sponsors not not nothing of that okay um yeah. but you do use i want to just kind of plug this real quick what hotshowers.com well how you found this back place? then there was no no warm showers right warm showers is a new thing and i must say on this trip yes what is warm showers so the oh warm showers uh probably most people have heard of couch surfing couch surfing is just for any backpack sort of traveler uh, and you can hook up with people and sleep on the couch now Cycle uh, to tourists uh, have been around for a long time, and many of the cycle tourists have enjoyed hospitality along their ways. 
by random people, sometimes by other cyclists. And I guess the, 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 the people who started this felt like, wow, what, why can't we build a network in which cycle tourists can give back what they have enjoyed along the way, or maybe give and later take, it's the same principle of, of, of karma. You, you give to someone, you may get from someone else. And, uh, but it's mostly, uh, if not only, for cyclists. Uh, John, the person where I'm, uh, who is hosting me here, he traveled probably 10 years ago on a bicycle for a while, for a long while. And he's probably an example of how this thing works because he, even though he hasn't been out for a while, as I understand it, he still has that spirit and he still appreciates today and remembers today the wonderful experiences he had and he's still giving back and that is that is how this system essentially works and it's essentially you contact an individual who posts on this website and they give you what a warm shower and a place to sleep for free oh absolutely yeah uh, it's it's often uh, a spot to camp it's sometimes a warm shower because that's often really needed when you're cycling in hot countries but it's often really a, a bad, uh, it's, it's someone to talk, uh, which on the long days on the road is sometimes also important. It is sharing experiences. It's sharing, um, perhaps, uh, intelligence on the route you are taking. Perhaps the person who is hosting you has been on that road. Or maybe you have been on a road where that person wants to go. So it's an exchange uh, of so much more than just a spot to sleep. Mm. Uh, I would almost say that the sleeping and the shower is is the minor Got it. aspect. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, I want to touch upon that so yeah. the listeners could, if they should choose to go out, they could use that as a resource. Yeah, but uh, I would think uh, there are some countries which have a which have a lot of warm shower uh, hosts and and possibilities, mm. uh, but that's obviously not. Everywhere in the world, the case. Okay. So, depending where you go, uh, you may be very lucky and find a, a big coverage. But not having warm showers shouldn't stop anyone of not going. They, you will be surprised how how open how how a bicycle can open doors and can can warm hearts and open people's minds for a. A reason that I still don't 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 even start to understand. Mm. It just makes a difference when you pop up with a bicycle. People seem to change, and so you. I often ask farmers or 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 anywhere if I can pitch the tent on their ground, and I have rarely had, if ever, a negative response. Often, if they say no. It's for a good reason, and they will point you in a good direction. Um, I think a cyclist uh, is uh, not is less intimidating than other modes of travel. It uh, it suggests independence. It, su- it su- suggests effort involved. People appreciate that. And for some reason, people are comforted by the assumption and this case the right assumption that you are not going to hang out hang around for very long <laughs> and uh, so yeah if you come if you come up with a backpack 
they may say, well, well, for how long is this person going to squat on my ground? With a bicycle, it suggests that you are on the move. You really just want to sleep the night there. It's a beautiful perspective. I like I, that. I think it is. And you have a very good yeah. education on the subject. Um, I know you don't want to get into it, but I know the audience wants to just kind of... I think a lot of people who haven't gone out and done the kind of adventure that you've done or even just gone out traveling a little bit because they fear that the people they encounter might harm them, rob them, or whatever unrealistic fear they might have. And then there are incidences where those fears can come true. You can be in a bat in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes. For example, like I've had nothing but good luck all over the world. Yeah. However, in Germany, I was attacked randomly one night walking on the street. Yeah. And Germany is the safest place in the world. So yeah. it just bad luck happens. And I know the audience, I think, would like just to hear in a very simple way, when you were kidnapped, was it just you being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Absolutely. Okay. So just bad luck, Absolutely. unfortunate circumstances. This, the thing, uh, if I may, I, I'm not the person who gives suggestions lightly. I, I don't like getting, um, recommendate, unsolicited, unsolicited, um, advice. But if I may give an advice, it is, India is a dangerous place with a bicycle. Not so much because cycling would be dangerous or, or because India would be dangerous. It's as dangerous or as safe as any other place in the world. The thing with the bicycle in India is that with the bicycle gives you the ultimate freedom of going wherever you want. This is the reason why we're going with the bicycle in the first place. Uh, into the forests, into the mountains, cutting through areas, connecting spots which you wouldn't be able to connect with a motorbike or with a, with a, with a car, much less public transport. That's why we go with the bicycle. Now, India, um, has a lot of, um, uh, areas, black spots, let's call it, uh, with, with internal, um, um, struggle. Um, insurgency, you may want to call it. The Indian call it the Naxalites, uh, or the, some people call them the, um, the Maoists. Lots of names for the same thing. For people who are marginalized by the society, sometimes over millennia, and who are essentially driven back into remote areas, forests, mountains, in which they struggle to to survive and those areas are becoming more and more restricted and smaller and in some cases like in the case in the area where I was maybe um, resources mineral resources or whatever is found so there was a lot of pressure on those communities and uh, so here comes the cyclist along and looks in the map and sees a large forest area and and doesn't want to go 500 kilometers around that entire state uh, but going just cut across which would mean like 100 kilometers only and then you have well with the bicycle you have the poss possibility in my particular case I cycle and I go through lots of military checkpoints 
And the thing about many countries is that those checkpoints are very vague, very much geared up for cars. And so often the, the controlling guard is sleeping and he doesn't really wake up when you come with a bicycle and you really don't want to wake him either. And you, you just sneak through one, through two, and at the end you make it almost a sport. <laughs> to get through areas where obviously you, well, there's some restriction. The problem is no one really knows. Mm. The locals, uh, much less in other states, know what is going on. And before you know it, you are in deep, in deep shit. <laughs> like in my case, I was then way beyond the, the army uh, checkpoints and I was, uh, caught by by people who didn't really know what I was doing, who I was. I believe they thought I was in, an, an Indian spy. Now, you can't see me, but I definitely don't look like an Indian. Uh, but it really tells you a lot about the level of isolation those people are, are um, experiencing. So it really comes down to, I don't blame anyone but myself, for really pushing the line, which is something you would do at some point in India. You can't listen to the advice of people. People always say, oh, well, when you go to such places, you listen to the advice of, of the local. Well, sorry, that's wrong in most places. Locals in most places in the world will f call you crazy for wanting to go with the bicycle to the shop next corner. Yeah, like every Costa Rican is going to tell you not to come to Nicaragua because it's super dangerous. Exactly. So you, you could make that in any country. So essentially for me, it has become never ask the locals anything, you know, and, and it's just no, their world is different. Their level of, of fear of their own country is different. Their level of, of, uh, of everything is different. Now, okay, smart asses out there will say, well, that's, that brought you into, into the trouble. Well, it, yeah, maybe in that situation, but it has along the way brought me a lot of wonderful experiences too. And I, I wouldn't want to miss either really, because obviously if when you survive, <laughs> which was the case, um, well, you come out with, uh, ex again, experiences and knowing yourself in a way that I would never have experienced myself otherwise. Sounds incredible. And I'm assuming that kind of contributed to maybe, um, you're like, I would call it maybe post-traumatic stress where the, the I, I the did. I struggled a lot. And I, I, I went to, to later in Germany when I was again settled. I had, a, I found, I, even after four years, I found a job in my field again, which was like a miracle, even though I didn't want it. But it seemed to be the only thing that opened. And uh, I went and asked people who knew about these things, a psychiatrist, psychologist, I guess. And, but it didn't get anywhere. I, uh, I think in, those, in these things, you really need to find a person who, who you connect much, much more than on uh, just uh, uh, surface. Physician, patient, sort okay. of, uh, you, you need to trust the person. They need to at least make you believe that they, they, they have empathy for what you're going through. Yeah. 
And, and that wasn't the case. So eventually I, I gave up on that. Uh, you just worked through it on your own? Well, that came during, during this trip. I went back to India. Uh, because I really, I really felt, I went out of India with uh, such bad feelings, uh, in such a negative, with such negative, uh, feelings that I thought, no, that India des doesn't deserve that. India is, is a place you, you cannot only hate. Power just went off, folks. But we can continue? But we can continue. Okay. It's not a place, uh, that you can only hate. How could you only hate a place with such w colors, mm -hmm. smells, tastes, flavors, uh, uh, people's struggle and, and beauty and, and, and all that? And yet in the same sentence, I, sh I have to say you also cannot only love it. Right. Because you, how can you love a place with such misery and, <laughs> and where you see so much misery that shouldn't happen, shouldn't be reality in the 21st century. Totally. I, I have a lot of uh, discussions with guests on the show about India because mm -hmm. John and I spent three months there and it's one of those countries that, I mean, you need to experience once in your life. Yeah. I mean, it really gives you a perspective that you will never get going anywhere else because it is Absolutely. so full on. Absolutely. And so um, I felt uh, very strong so negative and so wrong that in this trip I went back, although without the bicycle. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, but I needed that, and it was hard. Like my my things were triggered more than once. But I left India. Oh, I I think I'm over it. It was wonderful. I fell in love <laughs> with an Indian woman. No, with a Spanish woman, but, <laughs> but anyway, still. And, um, yeah, no, it was, it was very, very important to, to go through that. And, and I feel, I feel most, almost so in peace. How many months the, did you go back for? Uh, well, the thing is, uh, along the way, I, uh, winter caught up with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was in Iran, in Tehran. And I decided to leave the bicycle parked with a friend in Tehran. And I went by, by road, okay. I mean by public transport, into the Arabic Peninsula and then via Sri Lanka to India. Okay. So I must have spent probably three months in India on this trip. Okay. But cool. just traveling, the, doing the tourist thing, mm -hmm. uh, but really uh, with the main focus trying to to encounter those demons and and try to to, to get friendly with them. <laughs> And it, it was wonderful. I love it. Good. That's amazing. It's kind of like that old saying, what, you know, get on, get on the horse that just kicked you off. Get oh, absolutely. No, exactly. Absolutely. That's exactly. But it right. sounds like, so we kind of jumped forward, but so when you got back yeah. to Europe, you got a job back in your old, um, industry. Yes. It sounds like. And yes. you worked there for how many years? Oh, that was, uh, um, eight months. Okay. The, the test time is six months and apparently they were happy. Okay. And I wasn't happy from the first day I started. And I just, I thought with time it would come back to normal. I even thought, okay, well, I'm, I, I was actually getting a very good salary there. I almost felt like I, when I negotiated the salary, I thought, okay, if I go really crazy, they won't take me and that would be good. But they did. And 
So, uh, and thinking that, okay, well, I may not like the life and I may not like the job, but at least I will be able to, to finance or buy things that I like and so compensate. But I have said before, that's not how it works for me. But you like, you, you might need a new bicycle at some point. No, so. no, it just doesn't, no, the money was just totally useless. So again, I was in the same situation as in Australia. I just so was, are you using the same bicycle that you rode the absolutely. first? Absolutely. No way. It's my bicycle. It's the only one. <laughs> wow. So it even okay. has a name. Really? What's its name? Jonathan Livingstone. If you know the fairy tale of the seagull. I've heard, yes. Uh, and bit. if, if, if anyone wants to, uh, cares to read that, it's, it's a bit of a story I cannot, um, I'll put it in the show notes with. so people can, when yeah. they listen, they know exactly how to get it. And I read can it. associate with that. It's just in a, in two words, it's a seagull that doesn't want to eat or that doesn't find joy in eating as all other normal seagulls do. She wants to fly. And she learns to fly and she loves flying and she flies so much that she actually dies out of starvation for being different. And there's a lot more to the story, yeah. but I feel like the normal things that most people want, I don't, I don't, they don't mean much to me. So <laughs> then that's great. That's super so, cool. It sounds like then you, Quit your job and you started so going I, back to Iran. No. So uh, after eight months, I decided... I, there were many things. So I was with this psychologist and um, that wasn't going anywhere. I had... Well, you know, you are in a well-paid job. You are in a company that is, that is rising like a superstar. Um, it's the largest, uh, plant breeding, private, pri uh, plant breeding company in Europe. It's a, it's a global player. Uh, at any rate, a very good company. Can we uh, just pause real quick? Yeah. Cause this is something I know the audience wants to maybe pick yeah. your brain on or maybe give us the pros and cons of GMOs. Oh, well, that was, <laughs> um, from your perspective, because you have a very good yeah, understanding it's, uh, of both sides it's, of it. Uh, we won't be able to do that in a, okay. on a side trip. But, but uh, there's a lot of potential to it. Um, believe it or not, we could reduce the use of pesticides in many crops significantly and therefore make our environment safer, not only for the farmers, and farm workers, which are often forgotten when we go to the, to the shop, we want healthy food for us. And we forget that, no, it's also the farmer who may be poisoned and their workers, because many farmers let other people do that job. We have got used to pesticides and, uh, for no good reason. So, uh, GMO, um, is often seen only in connection with large companies and people, People don't make a line. A GMO doesn't mean big companies. GM, not, not necessarily. GMO does not necessarily mean monopoly on seeds. In my particular project in Australia, and there, in, yes, in Australia, and there are many others, there's no large company uh, going to earn a single dime. For the contrary, they may be um, um, giving access to technologies at no cost for whatever reasons, really. But uh, no, there is potential to really make 
life better for people. I'm not saying that all approaches of GM make sense. Uh, Herbicide-resistant genes, uh, maybe such themes where you can see uh, negative aspects. But GMO doesn't end there and doesn't end with Monsanto and, and, and there is potential. So, yes, people are afraid. There are groups out there who want to portray it only in a negative way. But I can only say, don't forget that groups like Greenpeace, probably the biggest, does have an interest in having their opinion out there. The day Greenpeace admits, as they have many times under closed doors, that there is not, not really a reason to be f- fundamentally or, or by principle against it. Uh, the day they admit and make that public, a lot of millions, and we're talking millions of dollars, will stop pouring into their um, um, accounts. So these are people who do depend on a certain opinion. As much as, as Monsanto needs or well, former Monsanto, it's BASF now, or as the large companies want their opinion out there. So I think what we need to get back to reason is find the truth and not be, not be afraid of revising our opinions for the truth. And I think this is the big problem in the discussion, that none of the players, none of the people who are participating are really interested in the truth. They all have their opinion and their interests. And at the end, it's the consumer. It's the lay, lay person who need to pick a side of two people who neither is really telling the truth. And that, that is the sad thing. And it's probably not the only case in, in our society today where the people choose sides because they have think they have to choose a side, but none is really a good side. Mm. Well said. No, thank anyway, you. that's one Thanks for side. touching upon yeah. that, because I know yeah. people wanted to hear your impression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did not, perhaps I should make that, I did not leave science because of any concerns about safety or about goodness. I believe that the things we did there, and all the projects I have been involved, also those in Germany, would make... Uh, farming with those crops not only healthier but better and bring in enormous potential for, for betterment. Beautiful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do such a work. And, and I know the scientists I worked with are genuine, genuinely looking for that truth I was talking before. And none of them would ever hesitate to revise their own op- former opinions if if facts would show in the other direction. Right. People always think, often think, oh, no, those scientists are just uh, 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 the voice of the companies who finance their, their projects. Uh, no. Uh, I personally have never met any such scientists, and uh, I believe there are not many, if any. Right. So, Well, thank you for sharing yeah. that. And then, so going into your your next big adventure, the three years so, now that you've been on. The so, road. oh no, that's not. We are not quite there. Okay. Let's I left. See. I left uh, that German job, and uh, and so uh, I quit that job because I I felt I was getting sick. 
I, I, I just didn't want to work in the laboratory. I, I had been out camping out in the free for so long and I felt so in the cage. I was literally uh, in panic many a morning to go to the lab and knowing that there would be four very enthusiastic technical assistants <laughs> um, capable and wonderful as they were as people, uh, but so frightening to me um, in, in, in a job sort of situation. Oh, I... No, it was frightening. It was, it was so bad. So bad. I really had panic that some day, uh, one day I said, no, this, this is, this is just harming, harmful. I, I, I can't. I, I don't want. So I quit after eight months in total. And, uh, that was winter. That was terrible. Went in Germany and so, uh, for reasons I, goes too far. I went to Australia. Yeah, the person who didn't want to to fly from Australia to Germany because oh that's another factor here. <laughs> because I feel it's 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 wrong to fly these long distances. But here I was in an airplane from one day to another to Australia. I a colleague of mine whom I had worked in Australia had had, had some family issues and I felt and I just did it. I often do that now. I felt it would be a nice gesture to go and show her sympathy. And so from one day to another I went. <laughs> and uh, it was absolutely uh, therapeutic to go there, meet all those people who had, who had in part followed me through emails on my trip that had lasted four years and now was five years back. And, and to see all those people who, and somehow had led me to take that decision. And, uh, and I went back after two or three weeks in Australia, back to Germany. Um, and I felt like, no, I felt, was full of energy, full of convinced, yes, it was the right thing to quit that job with all the consequence, financial consequences and to, See what what was in stock. There is so much to do in the world. There's so so much to do. We just have to open our eyes and and try. And so I I have always had a passion for beekeeping as on a hobby level. And I thought, well, the season is wind. The spring was on the on the footstep. And so I found an appointment with a large beekeeper in France. Uh, whom I joined for this season. So I packed all my stuff and ended up in central France. Um, and I worked there for a whole season, learning a lot. Uh, and at some point thinking, wow, I could do that myself. I don't need to be employed. I just need to find a place where it's good for bees. And I was reminded of Transylvania in uh, Romania. And so I started to look for possibilities uh, from France. I was still in France, in Transylvania, and it, a possibility opened. A family of farmers wanted, of German farmers who had been there for about eight or ten years, 
for different reasons with the kids wanted to go back to Germany and they needed someone to take over the farm. Uh, they weren't sure if they would go back to Romania, so they didn't want to sell. I was ready to to buy. But I was quite happy also to just take test, over. Test it out, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I left all my stuff at the farmhouse of a friend in France, in near Clermont-Ferrand, which is pretty much the center of France, including my bicycles, and I left with a backpack bound to Transylvania, to Draculaland. And I got there, and we worked for about a month with the farmer, and I guess he had... We built up so much trust that they left. Uh, what were they farming? Forward. Oh, farming there is very rudimentary. It's very... Um, it's self-sufficient. You really don't sell much, uh, but you produce enough to survive. Uh, it's, uh, when I say rudimentary, I'm talking about stepping back in time, perhaps to the Middle Ages. There's no running water. There had just arrived, um, electricity. So water comes out of wells with, uh, with a bucket. Uh, how a uh, fire is obviously the only heating source and, uh, and that appealed enormously to me. Uh, yes, I know it's a bit of a romantic view of the past, and I know the past probably wasn't quite romantic, as romantic as we think. But at least what I found was, was very genuine. Uh, you eat what you produce. If you don't work your ass off, you will, you will suffer. Uh, I like that. Uh, I know that uh, I, I need to be busy. I need to to be physically engaged. Otherwise, I think too much. I'm sure psychologists out there will have words for this, but I just need to be occupied, get to bed, tired, know that I have done something that, that day, and, and in Romania gave me all that. Uh, I walked my fields with a horse, a blind horse, I might, I may add, best horse ever. <laughs> and again, you need to build trust with such an animal. It's a mutual thing. I can't survive without that horse, and that horse is pretty lost without me. Again, <laughs> again, that's that's something that that is pure, that is wonderful, and I I love that sort of thing. Uh, I and that's probably also the things I miss now that I'm traveling just to. Make that look. I miss my garden. Uh, that dependency on what I produce and that and that satisfaction when your when winter is on is there and your cellar is full of preserves and your potato cellar is your potato heap is big and your wood is enough probably for the winter and your animals are happy. Uh, that's something that that is rare to find in in our fast world. Uh, yeah, Romania was another th important thing in that particular village. Uh, and I'm not sure if I should go into details of the recent history of Transylvania, which is maybe important. But uh, Transylvania um, and 
that area of the Saxons, uh, who were ethnic Germans who lived there probably for 800 years, um, uh, saw an exodus after the revolution, after Ceausescu was killed. Um, an exodus in which villages may uh, have lost 90-95% of their population. Germans who from one day to another left. Um, to go where? To go to Germany. Back to Germany. Well, back. They had never been to Germany. As I say, eight, nine hundred years in Transylvania, they were hardly German. But ethnically speaking, and from their language, they were Germans. Now, during, during Second World War, actually, rather, after Second World War, they had so many unjust, injustices against them. Um, and the struggle was so enormous that when the opportunity came, to leave, and without knowing what the future would, would bring, they just didn't 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 think it twice, and they left. They left animals, houses, farms, everything standing as it was, and just left. And uh, so, that particular village where I was, uh, of them, I'm just guessing, 300 uh, houses, maybe 100 houses were occupied. Two of them Saxons. They were essentially too old already to leave. And the rest were people who had come in because of the opening opportunities out of other regions of Romania who were struggling more. So what you have today in those villages is that you don't really have a, have a functioning community. You know, everyone is pulling their own way. Um, you have uh, people who essentially survive from stealing from the abandoned property of who knows whom by taking out metal parts and so. And that was the reason why this German family wanted me to live in the house because they knew if they are out, that house will not last long. So, Did you have any problems when you were there? Oh, well, this we are coming to that. So... Um, to me, I was going to the wonderful things there. There were a lot of old, elderly people, former Saxons, sorry, Saxons, but as well Romanians, who were alone. And if you are with 85 out there in the bush, alone, it is comforting when someone comes and looks after you, even if it's only every second day, or brings you bread, or gives you a hand when you when in winter it's minus 30 degrees and you need to get water out of your out of your um, well and you cannot physically do it anymore. So, and I felt that was very enriching too, to be needed. You know, living alone all my life, really. Uh, suddenly, wow, here's a deeper purpose. Those people need me. And that's, we always think it's great it's a blessing uh, to give. No, it's a much bigger blessing to be needed. Um, sorry. It's sorry. a big blessing to, to receive. So it's a much bigger blessing to give and to be needed. Mm. That was the idea of what I was. So, and all those things made my time in Romania uh, one of the best times I ever had. But, yes, there are always buts. Yeah, lots of stealing. My crops were regularly destroyed by, by 
by disrespect, by, by negligence of animals. I had a neighbor with 300 sheep, another one with I don't know how many goats, and another one with lots of horses. So all those animals alone, they can make a lot of damage in your cornfield, I can tell you. Ever seen 10 horses going through your cornfield? This is tromping on everything. And so, yeah, one, I remember after two years, I got, I caught the neighbor's son inside my house stealing. I had been missing little notes of, of money. And you always question yourself first. Oh, where did I put it? I must have put it somewhere else. And you know, it's not much money moves there. So I really needed that money to buy things that I couldn't produce. Oil. A cooking oil or uh, sugar things and suddenly I, I caught this little brat and I realized okay this is this is going on for a long time and there was no way that I could really close the house properly and the villages there are built in a way that everyone really knows what the other one is doing so he knew exactly that day when I was going to get my fetch my cows that I was be away for maybe 20-30 minutes and he didn't realize that uh, just uh, I don't know, 200 meters away I realized that I had forgotten something so I went back and there he was hmm. and from that day on I, I never felt the same with the place uh, I never could really leave the village into the next town it would take probably half a day to get to the market town whole day to go so walking back and driving uh, you would hit, I would hitchhike. I sometimes would go with the horse to the, to the main road and then go by buses to the, um, and, uh, or with a bicycle. I mean, not with the bicycle I have now. I had other bicycles there. Um, so, uh, and there's a moment where, where you just, it's just so much more hate that builds up than, than love. I remember, one crucial day was when someone was knocking the gate and I took the club that I had next to my door in my hand to go there. And then I, halfway I realized, what are you doing? Is this who you are? Is this who you want to be? Um, I caught, uh, there was one family, I must say, of gypsies. They were particularly bad in stealing. Uh, and we had large gypsy community in the village. Um, and I don't want to go into details of the struggle of the gypsies. Uh, they have been done injustice for many, many hundreds of years. So there's a reason for their behavior. But that doesn't make it good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, oh, I was kept catching them so often, destroying neighbors' houses, stealing stuff, and catching them physically, putting them down particularly two of those brothers and bringing them to the, uh, getting them to the police and apparently they would be beaten up in Romania anything is possible and next morning they would be out stealing again uh, as I say my crops were regularly destroyed and like no one no one cares they were there for two years and I was there f- no after two years things started I got uh, the neighbor's son and I was there for four years in total I really hang hang on I, I was very happy I was very happy and uh, my my bee business I had lots of bees 
I mean, that's the f- reason I went there. Right. Was doing very well. I mean, ups and downs, like mm-hmm. in everything with nature. But um, there came a moment where I I realized, no, I'm. This is more. This is taking me to a level of 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 inner inner anger that I don't want. And of course, there was always the, op- the possibility of catching the bicycle. And Iran, I hadn't been, and the international situation towards Iran was not really pointing in a good way. And remember when I had tossed the coin and yeah. didn't go to Syria, and just look, Arab Spring came, and Syria is never going to be what it was. And I thought, I don't want that sort of situation happen with Iran. No. And so I, that was after three years. So I, it took me about a year to clean up the farm and, and um, clean up means getting rid of all the stuff and things that I had accumulated. So did you buy, you bought the farm eventually? No, I never bought it. I, I used the farm, but obviously you buy the animals. Uh, cows, pigs, chicken, um, horse, uh, all the materials for the bees I had. I had material for about 300 beehives, apiary. You need to send the honey extractor, you need the maturing, um, um, tanks, and all the bits and pieces. That's a lot of stuff. And not to forget the cat. <laughs> I think the cat actually made me stay for half a year longer really because you cannot just leave the animals there and the wonderful thing is i really got rid of everything and here's another thing that you probably don't understand if you don't go through that it's so uplifting to get rid of stuff every every hammer every tool every bee box that was out of the way made me grow wings and made me so light Ooh. And then came the news that the farm, the owner of the, I mean, I informed the farmers or the, the owner farmers about a year before that I was really, really, um, considering leaving. And they found a family who would, they, they by then had decided to really give up Romania and wanted to sell it. And they found a family who was going to, uh, take over. The, the house. They are originally from there. They have been born there. They have all the family there. So it was for them really just a change of house within the village. Uh, a, a gypsy family, incidentally. Uh, one of the most wonderful people I met there from the gypsy community. So I'm very happy that they made that big step from the gypsy ghetto into a decent house. And they are, they really are are great. I'm so happy. And they wanted the cat. <laughs> so here was the cat sorted. The dog was loose around the village anyway. So yeah, um, the day I left, I left with the backpack. The same, pretty much the same backpack I had arrived. Back to France to get your bike. Back to France. I visited along the way. I visited the family. Uh, we spent a wonderful week together. And then I went to fetch the bicycle. The farmer, obviously, the father of my friend uh, didn't believe his ears when he said, he thought I was going coming to pick up all my stuff and then on the coffee I told him, uh, would it be possible to leave everything here and just take my bicycle? And then I opened up to him that I wanted to go east um, 
pretty much following the Silk Road, that means um, north of the Himalayas and the Hindukush and the, to Central Asia towards China. And I mean, I guess he didn't have a choice, and so it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and next day, I was on the bike. I mean, I had all the things there. Yeah. I didn't need to buy not even a pair of socks. And there I was on the way, happy to be in those old smelly clothes again. Same bike, and it felt great. Man, just to see your face light up when you talked about yeah. that, it's just really cool. Yeah. And I have never, re this is now three years into the ride, I, I miss many things of Romania. I never regretted leaving, though. Can you just take us briefly through your, your course now and how you kind of got to Nicaragua? So you did yes. the Silk Road and... So, uh, first of all, you need to... The Silk Road uh, is... is uh, You may want to put a link there and your thing as well. Is a term that was... Uh, well, we need to go back to Marco Polo's time and when the the the, the world was still full of black spots and no one really knew what was on the other side of the planet. And so we had the powerhouse of the world today as much as back then was China. And you had the other side of the world with Europe with all the goods they had that were, did not exist in China. And all the places in between who had stuff and needed stuff, much as today. And so uh, there was a lot of trade, intercontinental trade, back then, even though it probably never went with the one and the same caravan all the way, but there were trading points along the way, and things were sold and bought and resold and bought, and some things went up towards St. Petersburg and the Tsar, Russian, or whatever it was back then. And other things went down towards India, and other things went uh, towards Arabia, and most things probably went towards today Syria, and eventually to Europe. And so the Silk Road uh, was coined that way because one of the products that were produced only and exclusively in China back then was silk, and it was priced very highly in Europe. And so we talk about Silk Road, hopefully knowing that silk was just one item of many. And perhaps we can even consider thinking that goods were not the main items traded, but traditions, religions, thoughts, may have had a much deeper impact in how the world became to be. So, uh, and that road is full of mystery and, and, that road is full of, uh, uh, mystery and, and stories and history and, and wonders back then as much as today. And it's probably one of the big routes and challenges that every cyclist, every serious cycle, long-term cycle or long-distance cyclist tackles at some point. So it starts, I must say, it's not a route, it's not a path, it's a network, 
it's 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 an imaginary network where you when you are there you you sometimes feel okay well this has seen a lot in in the past of the time uh, but it doesn't mean that that you will be constantly following the footsteps of some right. ancient uh, animals or herds <laughs> or something but do uh, you have many many moments where you feel back in time along the way and it's uh, okay going out of France I first had to go to what many consider the European end of or the closest end to Europe which is Istanbul and so I went uh, from France I went over the Alps into Turin into into Italy I went halfway down through Italy I thought it would be cool to go through Rome and then I went over the Adriatic Sea into the Balkan and I kind of liked it at first sight so I went north and went instead of going south towards Greece I went north a little bit and crisscrossed those many former Yugoslavian countries uh, which are enormously interesting uh, in so many aspects but also very sad because uh, you realize that the, the Balkan war conflict is all but over many of the reasons they fought in the first place are still there and are going to ignite probably at any point I mean, if I can just throw in one term, Republika Spilska, many people have not ever heard of it. Uh, that's just going to blow up again. There's a lot of ethnical issues there. Um, uh, and, yeah, it's a shame that people cannot um, grow even after big disasters like, like, the, like the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I came eventually I came out again at the Adria in Albania and I fell in love with Albania uh, immediately. It's one of those countries that are so weird that and people are so wonderful and the main thing is they don't know how wonderful they are. Mm. And uh, from Albania I went then back through uh, Macedonia and all. If there is any Greek uh, listening to this. Uh, I don't care what you think about that name. I think it's possible to have two regions in the world with the same name. So I went through Macedonia and into Macedonia region of of Greece and had police problems there because I was calling the other Macedonian Republic that name. I'm not sure if you are aware of I'm the conflict, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I went, I went through Greek, to Greece, sorry, eventually island hopping, uh, into Turkey, and I just want to make it fast here. Uh, through Turkey, and then I made the first big detour. Uh, I went along the Syrian border, what is Kurdistan. Uh, met a lot of. Back then, the refugee crisis was was really uh, taking form, and yeah, it's it's one of the biggest challenges of our times. Not only in the region, but everywhere. With today's possibilities in transport, people can go everywhere and will go everywhere. You cannot... Gone are the times when you can't... 
tell someone living in a carton box that, well, shit happens and they should just suck, uh, it, up. suck it up and, and stick to it. No, people have access to media and will see that there can be a better life for them and the kids. And wouldn't it be wrong to blame them for trying the best? And yeah, it's a challenge. I'm not saying that everyone should necessarily um, be welcomed everywhere. Or, but uh, yeah, we just need to realize that, that everyone is going to give the best shot. And that's the challenge, mm -hmm. to, to really make the world a place where people do not even want to move out of their homes. Yeah. And their places and their because ultimately they really don't want to it's just absolutely no one wants no one ever wants it's right. it's just you also don't want to live in that carton box right. forever and die mm. there so yeah um and then i went into the caucasus from turkey up to georgia and then south into armenia Arme uh, armenia sorry and then into iran finally it took me a while to get the visa for Iran for different reasons uh, and I I never really thought of giving up it took me like three months um, you just sat waiting oh I waited I, I just gave it a lot of shots in different embassies and um, and I'm so happy I, I I said put and I gave it time because it's the question many people ask, oh, well, what is the best place? And I'm reluctant to answer that question. But in the case of Iran, I actually can say that Iran is one of my favorite places. And it's not because of the food, although it's wonderful. And it's not because of the landscapes, although they are breathtaking. And I love deserts and, and other things. And in Iran, there seems to be of everything something. And it's not about the wonderful history of Persia. Ultimately, it's the people that make every place, and most travelers will agree, and Iran must have the most wonderful people. Mm. Uh, to an extent that it actually tires you of the hospitality, that you start to complain about how, how often they invite you to tea and to food and to shelter and, and yeah. I've heard that from cyclists and in <laughs> India. They actually said that they came into Iran and none of their uh, cards would work. Their bank cards, their credit cards. Oh, nothing works there. And so everybody that they encountered as they cycled towards India, like you just said, invited yes. them in, yes. took good care of them, paid for everything, no problem. And they didn't spend one dime Absolutely. in Iran. There are unfortunately people who are traveling to Iran know that and are committed to not spend a single dollar. Oh, I think that, it, that should not be the case. Yeah, of course. I actually made uh, a decision very early on that I would not accept more than one invitation per week unless yes, unless it's really raining buckets and or any other reason. I'm pretty much stuck, stuck to it uh, and I'm happy because, you know, as a cyclist, yes, you receive a lot of hospitality, but what, what are you giving back? Mm. And I think what we can give back is stories, uh, is giving back maybe a different perspective of life or, or, or the world sometimes. And for that, you need to be fresh, you need to be exciting, 
you know, to be excited about telling your story. And honestly, if you do that every day, uh, you will be tired of it and you will be sick of it. And yeah, it's, it's fair. It's, it's only fair to, to cut on that. And honestly, we, you can camp beautifully in Iran and, and by that, by having that little privacy very often, uh, you, you remain fresh for all those wonders that encounter you every day. Beautiful. So, uh, I have, I'm so fortunate that I knew people and their respective family. I met when I was in Iran, uh, very good friends, some of the best friends I have in the world. And, and, ah, uh, it was just heaven every time, every day. Uh, really, really, uh, a wonderful time. And, well, yeah, and the winter caught up with me. Uh, I have, I had my first snow in Armenia. And then in Iran, two months later, it, I really sat there in deep snow. Again, some random guy from a village just, just saved me, took me into his, his wonderfully heated house. Uh, but then I decided, okay, well, I, I, uh, I can't cycle like this through Central Asia. It's just going to be worse there. And so I left the bicycle in Tehran and I left, uh, as I said before, back okay. to India, yeah. among other things. And, uh, I'm so happy I did that. I came back to Iran, uh, by spring, uh, for another month. And, uh, this was, Beautiful in so many ways. First of all, I got there to no, no rules, which is the Iranian spring festival. It's the biggest festival they have. Like the country is, is totally stopped. Everything is stopped. Everyone goes back to their hometowns in the countryside mostly. Tehran, that crazy big crowded place is quiet and is clean air and it's really nice. And people in the families, uh, Iranians are very social creatures. Uh, they constantly hang out with their family and in-laws. And that's wonderful if you have a good relation to your in-laws. It's terrible if you don't, because they will, will stick, will still stick around at your house. Um, but so yeah, for no rules, everyone comes together, uh, big feasts, exchanges of gifts, and lots of little traditions that are made, and that was very nice to to enjoy and and share that time with my friends. Uh, but eventually, I had to move on, uh, and I moved on towards Central Asia. And then there come some really crazy places. Where you think like, am I in the wrong movie here? Turkmenistan being the top of the list there. It's absolutely nuts. Uh, in what way? Make, what makes it nuts? Like, oh, it's a totally authoritarian police state. Um, no, it, this is just too short to even start saying. That's fine. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a per. Uh, I think people are more familiar with what's with the personal. Personality cult going on in North Korea. Well, Turkmenistan is nothing short of that. Okay. Uh, the thing is, it has a lot of gas, and and so the international community 
especially the oil-hungry countries. I don't even want to mention any names here, but you know, uh, they are just um, accepting every craziness that goes on in, in that on in that country, especially in the context of Afghanistan in the region. Many of those Central Asian countries were important for the war effort there to have military bases and routes of supply. And so many of those authoritarian regimes have just gone totally berserk during those uh, years and continue to be so. Anyway, it Did took you feel me safe when you were going Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were fine with you. Well, within, yeah, More yeah. Or less. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel threatened by okay. it. It's complicated. It's visas are difficult. Police controls are crazy. There are situations where you have people, police people running after you, shouting at you, pointing into all directions. You have no idea what to do. And you just don't know what is going on. Uh, uh, that sort of thing. Mm. It's obviously a language where I don't speak Russian, uh, which would be helpful in that region. But yeah, it's then so Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, which uh, after the death of Karimov, which was the authoritarian dude when I was there, he has died and things have gone, for the start anyway, a good way. Uh, which has been refreshing for the region because he was blocking out of ethnical reasons i guess uh, a lot of things trade uh, infrastructure projects which need much attention and so he's out he's dead and uh, and i think the region is better for it uh, so from there i went uh, into tajikistan and made the famous uh, um Pamir Loop. Cyclists among you will know what I mean. It's a it's a la, it's a high plateau uh, wedged into the Tian Shan Mountains, and it's north of the Hindu Kush. Uh, this is uh, the countries bordering the Pamir are Afghanistan. Um, uh, well, in a way, um, Pakistan and China. Um, it's extremely remote. It's uh, culturally very interesting, uh, religiously very interesting, and from the cycling perspective, very challenging. It's very high, about three and a half to four thousand meters. Uh, arid. Uh, there's nothing there to buy, and so it's a it's a challenge in many ways, and uh, very worthwhile going through. Um, and then from there into Kyrgyzstan or Kyrgyzstan, depends who says it. And that's the total contrast. This is a bit lower. You have still the high mountains everywhere you look, but things are great. green. You have a lot of, uh, um, uh, how do you say, uh, migrating herders, cultures, so you see yurts and wild horses, oh, sorry, horses running wild and free, although they belong to someone, cows and jacks and goats, and and uh, it's probably what people think uh, Mongolia would be, without having ever been to Mongolia, but uh, very physical people, uh, which you see in their sport, 
uh, like famous. violent, you mean, or just oh uh, yeah, violent, uh, uh, very tough, mm. tough people. Uh, those who I don't even know the name anymore. This is famous horse uh, game where you chase a uh, a dead goat. People of they saw it in Rumble movies. That's played there. Uh, that's a sort of uh, things that go on. Very macho society. Yeah, yeah. And yet they are gentle in other ways. Okay. Uh, there are flowers uh, even in front of yurts. And so there's a lot of contrast. But there are those people, I, I, you don't want to mess around with them. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought I would like to join one of those uh, horse games. And then I saw one and I said, no way. <laughs> no way. They really break limbs and and bits and pieces and they don't give a damn <laughs> it's just uh, unbelievable uh, so yeah I, and um, my passport was ripped in Uzbekistan I should have said that before uh, by a poli- by too many police controls they essentially ripped it in, apart in two and with that thing I couldn't go on my travel so I went to the German I traveled with my German passport I have two passports and I went to the embassy and they wanted me to get a new passport with all the complications involved. Uh, after one month, I had that passport and then I needed my Chinese visa and that passport, which turns out to be very, very difficult to get out of your country of residence, which begs the question, which one is that anyway, in mm-hmm. my case? The thing is, I had to send my passport to Germany to get that passport that visa sorted and then there were some issues with the shipping so I essentially I waited for three months in Kyrgyzstan for that passport I can tell you there are worse places to to hang out for a while were you camping or did you get lodging oh no I was camping but I was I think I there's hardly there's no road left in that country which I didn't go it's just it's, it's just so many wonderful angles from different mountains or sometimes the same mountains from different angles and and no it's so three, months, three months two and a half months of those three months i i was out in the, in the mountains every now every in every step in every month i had to go back to initiate the new step and then i would be out again mm-hmm. i used the time to make some some tooth fixing in osh best then <laughs> Best dentist I ever met in anywhere. I have been at a lot of dentists. Uh, yeah, in Osh, that's the best dentist I, I met anyway. And so you use that time for things. But then eventually I was able to go into China at last, uh, into the, into, um, Kashgar, which is again a very important uh, point and milestone in the Silk Road context. And from Kashgar, uh, always east towards, uh, Shanghai, where eventually I, I was standing in front of the water. Um, and because of these, uh, passport issues, uh, it was too late to really cons- even consider starting in the Americas. Winter was at the doorstep. I think it was November. And so what to do? So I decided to stick out 
uh, hang out in the region and I went to the Philippines and uh, then for one month to Taiwan and then back to the Philippines again crisscrossing that enormous uh, quite homogeneous country thanks to the Spanish uh, colon colonial times but <clears throat> but still very interesting with the islands offering uh, different different aspects of, of today's Philippines. Yeah. And then uh, in spring, that was spring 2017, I took that final airplane over the Pacific, which saw me landing in end of February in Vancouver. So out of Manila with, I think, 35 to 40 degrees Celsius, uh, in Vancouver with snow <laughs> and two and a half months later cycling into Montana uh, it was still snowing wow. and I don't understand how Canadians can be so wonderful people because I think they should all be depressed, depressed <laughs> with that weather but they are they were such it was wonderful I felt overwhelmed with their friendliness and hospitality and I'm in touch with many of the people I met um, and I kind of wish I didn't cycle so fast through there hmm. yeah um, yeah important places there maybe we there are people in the audience who know the region I went up uh, Vancouver Island uh, and then part of the inside passage I took the first ferry Spring ferry out of Port Hardy ended up in Bella Bella, and from there with a small boat I went to Bella Coola. Do you know Bella Coola? No. Okay, Bella Coola is where Hulk, the Incredible Man, uh, walks into the forest at the end of the movie. Like a, a new version of the movie? No, that's the latest, I think. Okay. Uh, because it's the sort of place at the end of the world. Okay. Where you can probably wrestle. Grizzlies, mm -hmm. if it feels like, and it won't bother anyone. And it is, it really is the end of the world. Uh, I was so, so happy that I, I had an introduction to a lady who lives out there in the bush, Chris Tchaikovsky. She's an author. Uh, she's a what? An author. Author. Okay. Author of, essentially she writes whatever happens to her in her life. Uh, her most successful books have been out of the perspective of her dog. The later, the, her most successful book was Lonesome, and her newest book, I don't actually know the title, it came out recently, it's uh, uh, from the perspective of her dog Harry. Okay. Chris Tchaikovsky is an amazing lady. Uh, she, in her days, she would be airdropped somewhere in the, Canadian wilderness with a chainsaw and she would just build her her hut there and and build things and then get bored out of the comfort that would bring and then get airlifted somewhere else that's really what she used to do yep and her books are about that sort of life hmm. uh, now she's probably in her 70s so she's much more settled she can't actually drive to her current house uh, and but she's amazing and inspiring nevertheless. She has a wonderful website. And her name is again what? Chris Tchaikovsky. Chris, got it. 
And uh, so I stayed with her probably for a week, uh, waiting for the snow to really leave. And she was happy because there were lots of shores at home, where she, like climbing on the roof to clean the chimney and stuff. And so uh, I think she likes to be alone, and I tend to be the same. So we got along very well because we gave each other space and still enjoyed our moments together. And I had fun uh, cutting wood. Like she gave, she asked me if I had ever used a chainsaw. I had, so she gave me a huge tank of gas oil <laughs> for the chainsaw and uh, showed me an area where lots of wood had fallen due to the storm. Those lodge pole pines, I think they're called. And so I got mad and I cut a lot of wood. It was wonderful. It's very um, therapeutic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and then I met some other friends of hers who live out there um, and whom I miss, I guess. They have yeah, it's just they. These are the sort of people who live, who live. Uh, yeah, you will take things with you forever mm -hmm. of those encounters. Very special people. Beautiful. And then I made myself through the Chilcotin Plateau towards the Rocky Mountains, and eventually got to Jasper. Many people know that. And from there, I followed the Rocky Mountains south. Through, well, oh, I, I actually went into the into cowboy land, uh, and again, ah, well, this is the cycling. You, if you start with the details, it's just <laughs> endless. But like just one way. one wonderful experience after another, and eventually I went into the U.S. Rockies, and then I followed the great. Continental Divide Trail, which is a long-distance mountain bike trail following the Continental Divide, where the water split into the Atlantic and the Pacific. Right. Uh, eventually got southern Colorado, and from there I weird off towards uh, towards the um, Californian coast, towards San Francisco, through Utah and uh, Nevada. Um, and I was in that stretch, I was joined by a friend, uh, uh, a lady from the Bay Area, uh, whom I had met in my previous trip in, in Korea. So eight years later, uh, we were still in contact. I sort of like that to stay in contact with people I, I appreciate and they seem to think the same. And so she decided to join in with her bicycle. She organized the bicycle, and, and I think she had a wonderful time because she also came to Guatemala to uh, cycle along a little bit. So with her, we tackled the Utah, uh, the very tough areas of Utah, uh, and probably the most beautiful parts, cynically speaking, of this trip. Um, I wish I knew the name, but one, uh, it's the Grand uh, Staircase Escalante National Reserve, which uh, the orange man, Trump, has cut significantly. Mm. And I think uh, after having been blessed to be able to be in the Big Ears National Reserve and in the 
Escalante staircase area, I think it is absolutely devastating. Not only for the communities who, who live there, uh, but for humanity as a, as a, as a whole. It's an area that is largely untouched and we can conserve it and just leave it that way, really. Yeah. So, um, yeah, went through Boulder in, uh, which is at the edge of that park. And we were, we were there for, um, American Independence Day with all its parades and craziness and and it was, it was great. It's a, it's a sort of place where as a cyclist you wonder, well, I may as well stay here. And in fact, many of the, of the, of the people who live there have gone through with bicycles once and have come back, gone back and make a living out of who knows what now. Uh, Boulder, Utah, it's one of those magic places, really. Mm-hmm. And then into California and then along the, the coast through the Big Sur landslide. And if anyone thinks it's unpassable, it already was passable about, well, last summer, really, when I went through. It's a, I'm not sure if you know that. It's a huge landslide of, of Highway 1, okay. which uh, made the whole Big Sur area, which is... Yeah, one of the nicer roads to travel, uh, and, and unpassable for motorized vehicles. Okay. But, um, I still went and, uh, sneaked through at night and it was well worth it. Uh, not know. only because the detour would have meant like crazy distances through the, through the Central main valley, valley yeah. Central Valley, and I didn't fancy that at all. So, I went down the coast into Mexico. Beyond that, beyond that terrible wall, <laughs> which you wonder really what it is for. Mm-hmm. And then I followed the, the, um, Baja Peninsula. Baja Peninsula. That's right. Essentially avoiding Sonora and Sinaloa. Okay. And the cartels. Yeah. And then going through Mexico for the la, for four and a half months, uh, a wonderful, wonderful place, wonderful country. Uh, and surprisingly, Mexico City, which with all his overwhelming size and, and everything, uh, I stayed two weeks in Mexico City and I avoid cities and it's the place where I have stayed longest. Hmm. Uh, I mean, even in Kyrgyzstan, with my three months waiting, I never stayed longer than a week in any place. So Mexico City is is the secret uh, spot to explore. I hear it's more than one hundred museums of very inspiring quality and and themes and 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 people are are creative and are uh, uh, how to say. Innovative and uh, full of energy. It's, it's a Mexico that many uh, don't seem to see mm-hmm. or don't want to see. Mm-hmm. And then uh, again, a big detour towards the Yucatan Peninsula and then south through Belize into Guatemala. 
uh, I said before, my friend from uh, California, right. she joined in for her uh, Christmas holidays. And then eventually uh, to the Pacific, and since then pushing the pedals a bit faster. Are you? Uh, through El Salvador, Honduras, and now Nicaragua. Why are you going faster? You have some oh, to be. <laughs> oh, no, it's just, uh, I actually would like to be uh, in uh, Colombia before the rainy season, which supposedly starts end of March. Okay. And there is a one, you may have heard or not, of the Darien Gap. Yeah. And I would like to cycle through it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, cool. It will be a challenge. Uh, some people have walked it, people I know, and have got some valuable information. Uh, recently, and I think it, I will give it a shot. But definitely, I will have to decide after looking at some um, topographic maps in Panama. Yeah. So, so yeah. Anyway, in Nicaragua. Uh, uh, well, I got stuck here. Really, I have been here for two nights. <laughs> um, it's so relaxing. People are. Uh, People really have overcome their recent history of violence. Like Nicaraguans. Nicaraguans, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not the case yet in, uh, in uh, Guatemala or in Honduras or El Salvador. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that those countries were unsafe. It's just weird when suddenly one day people tell you, so, okay, go, go on, but please be very, very careful. And then after three people tell you that within half an hour, you start thinking, "What? where am I going? Mm-hmm. And it simply turns out that's, that's an undertone in, in society uh, there. Uh, I certainly didn't face any dangerous situation, nor did I hear of any major thing bicycle-related. Right. People hiking may be a different thing. Um, again, you have to be watchful. Uh, but for me, as on the bicycle, it has still be it has all been joyful here. It is so easy when you speak Spanish, and it's really my the culture I grew up in Chile with. It Are you trying so, to get back to Chile? So yeah, where am I going? Um, south, south, south. Uh, I'm going to Chile, and. Once there, I will see how much I can fit in this time. Honestly, the longer I am in the America, in the Latin Americas, I'm starting to doubt that's a good plan at all. Because, I don't understand. What do you mean? Well, you remember when I went there after my mm-hmm. studies in Germany, yeah. things had changed, and that was only after five years. Now okay. we are talking 20 years later. Um, you haven't been back in 20 years. I have not been back in 20 years. All my family is still there. And, and, well, but we have the same situation. Things have changed there. I have changed much more than in those five years. Yet perhaps the difference will be so big that it's really almost like getting to a new country altogether. And so Maybe that's exciting. Well, yeah, that in, in a, in a positive way. That's yeah. what I mean. So, yeah. uh, I will, my plan is really to, to get back and see the possibilities to build something much like I had in Romania, a lo- around the beekeeping, uh, sector. 
And um, because, well, I'm well aware that aware that I can't go on cycling forever, although I guess I would like to. Um, but no, it has to end at some point. And, Why uh, not Africa yet? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, plan B would be um, somewhere else in the region. And plan C would be, okay, well, I just go on. Mm -hmm. And then that would be uh, Africa, yes. Mm, beautiful. Africa, um, of which I'm, I'm still afraid. Yeah. And that's one reason why it's, it's quite attractive. Yeah. Of course. So, yeah, uh, I'm, it's not that I'm planning that at all. Uh, I, I really, I'd like to pursue the, the, the things I, I propose myself or I, yeah. The goals you set. The yourself. goals I set, yes. And I usually stick to them. Uh, that's why in, in terms of this trip, I really, uh, like if you would ask me, where will you be in next week? I have no idea because I really don't want to know mm -hmm. because I want to at least fool me in that way to say, no, I, I have no clue. I just go on. And that keeps that uncertainty and, and that uncertainty up. And that makes it for me interesting. Things that I, where I know the outcome, uh, I lose interest with. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and so for now, I know my big next aim challenge is Panama. That's within a month and a half. Mm -hmm. I should be, I should be there and looking seriously into how to get to Colombia. Do you, um, have a blog? No, website nothing, or anywhere nothing. people can I'm contact so you or find you or I'm so sorry. See your face. Uh, oh, I have a web. I have a, a Facebook. Uh, no, 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 nothing. I have an email. Yeah, just so you know. I could send it. Well, I could see my my silly face in in warm shows, I guess. <laughs> no, um, there's no. Sorry, I have no. That's okay. No Facebook. Do you want to give people the opportunity to maybe email you if for some reason they had a question? Oh yeah, absolutely. What, what's your email? Uh, that's JC JC uh, Popelka. Can you spell that? P O P E L K A mm -hmm. at Yahoo. Dot de. Oh, yeah. Yahoo.de. Yeah, don't put com. I, it may actually still work, but it's de for Germany, Got Deutschland. It. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sorry. It's, uh, that was incredible just to hear all Many cool people stuff. have, have asked me and trying, tried to encourage me to at least have a Facebook page. And honestly, after oh, so many, uh, uh, good friends in Canada, and it's really starting to be problematic to keep <laughs> up with the emailing. I have been seriously considering, but for some reason I don't, I can't take that hurdle. It seems, I don't know why. It seems, it seems wrong. This, this whole culture of, of, oh, look at me. Look at what I'm eating. Look at what I'm doing. I know you don't have to do it that way. But I, I fear I would, I could slip into the same. I see. And I, I no, no. Besi enough. Besides, I don't think it, this is nothing special, really. 
and just someone who likes cycling and who has just uh, who can't stop, which really uh, is an important thing. Uh, if ever, if anyone here starts cycling now, be warned. Once you start, it's addictive, and you get hooked by it. Uh, the stopping is so much more difficult. Mm. Not only the stopping, but also the getting back to normal. They say, this is famous saying, you may have heard it, you need as long as you were on the road to get back to normal again. And you may have noticed along this way that I have this four years circle in my life and perhaps I have never really stuck out Oh, sorry. Uh, stuck to it long enough to get over that that threshold. Yeah. Um, it's for me. It's a, uh, it's a problem. I would like to be free to just stop. On the other hand, I have been told many times, and I agree. I could do much worse. And for some reason, my money lasts forever. <laughs> it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a. I don't know why. And so that's not a thing that will stop me for now. Uh, I'm healthy. I don't know. My, my, my guardian angels are just really, really good. I have had accidents and things. Never anything happens. And so I don't know what will stop me. I hope I find a place where I can really, uh, um, Feel comfortable enough for a longer while, and 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 be be useful, and yeah. I think that's a beautiful way to close it. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your stories with us, and we wish you all the best as you continue down towards Chile, and you know, hope to keep in touch. We have your email, and mm-hmm. thank you for your time. Yeah, and these are warm showers, and I have a place. Uh, you may just pop in and and stay there. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it... It's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.